sir. Are you ready? Yeah, man. We're going. Okay. It's the Do Politics Better podcast. I'm Brian Lewis. And I'm Sky David. It was a short week, but one with a lot of news. The General Assembly left yesterday. They are on a recess that started Wednesday night. They're not going to be back until July 12th. That's right. And that's a Monday, so probably not much that day either. More likely July 13th. In the three days that they were here, really two days they were here, a lot happened. A lot happened starting last Friday, to be honest. And the news just kept rolling, starting with Governor Cooper's veto of the abortion bill that came right around 5 o'clock on Friday night. It was an abortion bill that dealt with women who are ineligible to get an abortion if they are making the decision based on race race and disability. Yes. Very emotional arguments on the floor of the House and the Senate. And the governor issues this veto late Friday. And then on Tuesday, I think the speaker announced that they wouldn't be taking that veto override up for a while, essentially saying it was going to go in the veto garage. The numbers were veto proof in the House because I think nine people didn't vote, but they did reach that 60%. So that'll be interesting if that is taken up. It's common to have Democrats vote with Republicans on some of these bills The question is, when it comes to the override, do the Democrats support the governor's position and their caucus's position, or do they stick to it and continue to vote for the bill, which is essentially overriding the veto? Right. It was interesting that we saw another veto on a Friday at five o'clock. We get a lot of questions about this and the timing of vetoes. And we had our intern, our summer intern this year, Brandy Fuentes, who is with us from Wingate University. We had her pull some statistics about Governor Cooper's vetoes. I wanted her to make a note of how many of the governor's vetoes happen on a Friday. And it appears from the list I am looking at that 24 out of his 56 vetoes since he's been governor have happened on a Friday afternoon. They call it the Friday news dump. That's Mm -hmm. when you have to put out news that maybe you don't want the most coverage. It was also interesting to note that Governor Cooper holds 60% of legislative vetoes. The governor in North Carolina only got the right to veto bills in 1998. Is that correct? Yeah, it it passed in that 95 legislature. It was a referendum that went to the people. Yeah, I believe it was the 98 session. So it doesn't cover a long range, but he does hold over half of the vetoes. Thank you, Brandy, for that research. And thank you to James White, who is the House principal clerk that Brandy thought that she would be able to easily find, and we thought she would be able to easily find this on the governor's website, but you couldn't. So she went up and talked to James White, who helped her find it on the NC-LEG website, where it was easily accessible. So that was on Friday night. 
And then the next day comes and NC State has been disqualified from the NCAA tournament. A heartbreaker for anyone out there who is following NC State baseball, really clawed into the College World Series. They get to the College World Series, I think it is last Friday, they're, they're playing, and some of their players at the time, we hear that they have, they have a bug. And we have players, uh, we have pitchers playing first base. We have pitchers who have not had at-bats who are in the lineup. They lost on Friday. They're supposed to come back on Saturday and play again. If they win the game, then they, they advance into the finals. A lot of folks in the General Assembly, a lot of folks in the public believe that the, the rug was just taken out from under them. We are recording this podcast on Thursday. The General Assembly has issued a bipartisan letter to the NCAA Mm -hmm. wanting to ask some very formal questions about the fairness, the equity, the rules. We even saw some posts by some senators who seem to be indicating that they are ready to run some legislation that the NCAA doesn't like. We're also hearing rumors that the NCAA is going to be called into the Senate to answer some questions. That will be interesting. And I do think it was a nice show of support. I saw some videos and photos of folks that went over to NC State's campus. I don't know where in front of the football stadium yeah. or something. Yeah, as they arrived. Yeah, and as they arrived back to welcome them back. But it was just a nice showing of solidarity for these kids who have been playing and felt like they were ripped off. Yeah, I think everyone agrees that the kids were the losers in this situation, along with the fans. There's still some finger-pointing going on about should the coach and the athletic director have required the student-athletes to get vaccinated. We've seen politics get involved in that discussion. I played baseball my life, and a rule... Brian wants everyone to know that he's the shortstop on his old people team. (laughs) That's right. You know, baseball, sports, even lobbying work, it's you got to control the things you can control. And we, we've seen it at the professional level where, you know, coaches are having their athletes get vaccinated. College teams are having their, their teams get vaccinated. And I think decisions by the administrators and, and even the coaches, the, the, it's, it's just unfortunate. We talked about this a little bit last week, but this week there was an official vote in the Senate Judiciary Committee on the medical marijuana bill. Yeah, last week when we were talking about it, I thought maybe the end of the road for this medical marijuana bill was simply to have a hearing. We've seen that before, right? You just bring a bill in for a hearing. You want to get a discussion going. You want a little media coverage. It was obvious last week that there was a lot of emotions on both sides about this legislation. Then we come back into the General Assembly this week, and we hear that they're having a committee meeting, and Judiciary Chairman Danny Britt says it is very likely that we're having a vote. The committee hearing is Wednesday, 2 o'clock. You and I are in the committee room. It is a packed committee room, and we heard, again, a lot of emotional testimony But something that didn't happen the week prior is we actually had a motion 
to advance the bill. The motion was made by Senator Kathy Harrington, Mm -hmm. who said that if you had asked her six months prior if she would be voting for a medical marijuana bill, she would have said no. And then she said, life comes at you fast and tearfully shared with the committee and everyone in the audience that her husband had just been diagnosed with multiple myeloma. The motion was held, and we heard from advocates. We heard some just really gut-wrenching testimony from, from veterans, from cancer survivors, people who are battling cancer now. And we heard from the opposition. Uh, the Christian Action League testified against the bill, the North Carolina Family Policy Council. We also heard some testimony. It it was notable that some advocates who were trying to advocate for uh, medicinal marijuana spoke out against the bill. Yeah, they said that the bill did not go far enough. Mm -hmm. They there were a couple of folks who spoke that said, "Hey, I had a brain tumor, for example." that wouldn't be covered under this. And I needed marijuana to shrink the tumor. Um, So you heard that sort of testimony on both sides. One saying, hey, this may not be what everyone wants, what the, I guess, cannabis community is looking for, but it's a step forward. And then some people that said, this bill is trash. It's not, it's not enough. And then there are people that said, we shouldn't do this at all. So it is quite a controversial issue. And it is progress for that issue. It seems to me that some of the medicinal marijuana advocates certainly want to give more discretion to the doctors and the patients. I think legislators, just from watching this from the sidelines, I think legislators are trying to balance a bill that provides medical marijuana access, but we are still in an opioid crisis, and there is a fear that some doctors, not all doctors, but some doctors will prescribe medical marijuana when maybe it should not be prescribed. It gets to the debate that we have talked about on this show, incrementalism, Mm -hmm. making gradual change, taking what you can get this year in building on it. Whether the General Assembly gives more to the medical marijuana advocates remains to be seen. It remains to be seen how far this bill even advances in the Senate. And if it does, does it advance in the House? Does it make it to Governor Cooper's desk? Certainly polling out there shows that the majority of North Carolinians want access to medical marijuana even Republicans are polling well above 50%. This is going to be one of the bills that you're going to want to watch this session. Another bill that you would want to watch, it's another bill where we are the lowest last in the nation, is one for juvenile delinquency court. It's been covered some throughout this session, and we do have the lowest age where you could bring a juvenile in for court, and that age is six. Mm -hmm. And there was a bill in House Judiciary 1 on Tuesday where they discussed bringing that up to 10. 
And I believe there was a deal worked out over on the Senate side, but the House had a different proposal. And so it was the Senate proposal that was moving forward. Yeah, this truly is a bipartisan bill, by the way. And again, Senator Danny Britt, I would say, is is really corralling this bill in many ways. I, he gets up when, whenever he talks about this bill in committee or in the media, he, he talks about how the state should not have uh, children on the stand who still believe in the Easter Bunny and the Tooth Fairy. I believe that I saw that there was a three-year study on juvenile delinquency court, and there were 211 juveniles who were called to court, and Mm -hmm. none of those kids are ultimately behind bars but they could still be found responsible. And there is data that shows that that is traumatic for the child regardless. The biggest news of the week. Huge news, scary news. Very Raleigh specific news. Yeah, a venomous snake was on the loose this week and everyone was talking about it in the building. I mean, so I, when I went outside to get in my car, even though I live in Cary and the snake was loose in Raleigh. I looked for the snake as I was getting in the car. I mean, we're talking about a cobra snake that just happened to crawl away from its owner. Apparently, he was handling it on the back deck, and it just slithered away. I don't know what happened, but I know that the guy has, like, a ton of snakes, right? And a YouTube channel for it. Yeah, I think we should do something about that. (laughs) I mean, I'm uninterested in going to his YouTube and seeing what's up. (laughs) Right. And so the images we saw yesterday, Wednesday, when they caught the snake. And by the way, when they caught the snake, people were talking about it at the General Assembly like they caught the snake. As if there was a sigh of relief, right? Like the snake could be in the General Assembly. The snake has a Twitter account and merchandise that looks like the Bojangles. And called Kobe, (laughs) Kobe the Cobra, and pretty hilarious fake Twitter account, I must add. So that's what I choose to think about and not about an actual venomous snake. Yeah. The question I have is, you know, we were all kind of freaked out about it. Do you think the General Assembly is someone right now is in bill drafting, uh, drafting up legislation to deal with venomous snakes? possible. Yeah, I might have to get behind that. Well, I guess if we were going to bring up a bill, you know, we'd have to, at this point, we'd have to, because the bill filing deadline is over, but but one guy could probably help us get around the bill filing deadline in some way. That would be Representative Destin Hall, the rules chair in the House. As you know, last week, we had the Senate rules chairman, Bill Raven, on the podcast, and this week, we have the House rules chairman. So we broke our own rule of going Republican, Democrat, Republican, Democrat. Well, we wanted to give you two rules chairman, the rules chairman of the of the Senate and House back-to-back, so it was great having him here. The Do Politics Better podcast is supported by the North Carolina Travel Industry Association. Founded in 1955, NCTIA has a distinguished history of partnering with the North Carolina General Assembly to strengthen and preserve tourism in North Carolina. Visit nctia.travel for more information on how you can support your local tourism destination and the thousands of North Carolina jobs it creates.
Representative Destin Hall, you're in your third term in the House and you are from Lenore. Tell us a little bit about your district. So my district is made up solely of Caldwell County, uh, which is right between Hickory and Boone as you get into the foothills of, of Western North Carolina, just sort of at the bottom of the mountain right before you head up the mountain. Uh, made up of mainly of Lenore and Granite Falls, and I live uh, in Lenore. So in your third term, you have already elevated into one, one of the most important positions in the General Assembly, period, the House Rules Chairman. I, I just got to ask you about it. What do you think? Did you even know what the Rules Chairman was when you first got elected? Did you, did you realize the importance of this position? And can you explain what you do today? So the answer to that is no, I had never heard of the rules chairman at all before I became elected, and I haven't forgotten that. Uh, I I remember that, and it keeps me grounded because I know that uh, while a lot of people around the building that we work in a lot, they care about who the rules chair is. Once you get outside of that building, most people in the state really don't care uh, who the rules chair is. So um, I always try to keep that perspective. and, you know, as, we, as I got into the General Assembly and, um, and got to understand what the rules chair, what he, what the, what he did, um, and some of the roles that the rules chair has to take care of um, through knowing our, you know, former chair, David Lewis, I, I saw uh, that it's really a lot of work. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's one of those things that before I became rules chair, uh, I always thought, man, you know, that, it would be cool to do it, but maybe lower on the list of things that I would – rather do in the General Assembly um, because you you deal with uh, a lot of things going in different directions all the time. Um, But I enjoy that challenge. So in addition to managing the flow of legislation, what goes to the floor, what goes to committee, committee assignments, the rules chairman also has like some mundane tasks, right? So you're assigning office space. You're you're assigning just about every, you're writing the rules of how we interact at the house. How do you have time to do all this? Because I understand you also practice law back in Lenore. Right. So the, the answer to that is I've got a great staff uh, who help me a lot and they stay on top of things all the time because Really, the role of the rules chair, in a nutshell, is you're doing uh, all the things that the speaker doesn't necessarily uh, care to do. He's dealing with the the big issues and the big bills that are coming through. And sometimes on a a bill that not a lot of folks have heard about, he'll get involved if there's some sort of member dispute or something like that. But other than that, it's really left to the rules chair to assign office space, uh, to put all the committees together, to assign parking spots, um, you name it, the rules chair ends up dealing with it. And that's not even getting into the actual bill referrals. So mm-hmm. you have to go through them, figure out what committees they should go to. You've got to figure out, uh, you know, if it's a bill that, that we think should pass. And, you know, one of the jobs is the, of the rules, rules chair is to make sure not only that good bills get passed, but that bad bills don't get passed. And there's a number of different tools uh, to use to do that. But, uh, but I do have a full-time law practice uh, at home and uh, spend a tremendous amount of time on that. And, you know, I I basically, when we're in session, I'm down here Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, some combination of those days, sometimes other days, but then I'm uh, in my law office Friday, Saturday, Sunday afternoon after church, and and all day Monday. I have seen you walk down the hallway 
from your office. Maybe you're going to a caucus. I've seen you just in the LB get stopped three times by legislators asking you, hey, can we get this bill moving? Can you, can you, will you allow me to run this amendment? How many requests a day do you get? So earlier today, I looked at my phone and I had about 70 unread text messages, which is uh, not unusual for a day that we're actually here in Raleigh and in session. I would say on a typical day, in terms of just actual bill requests, we probably get somewhere 10, 15 or so at least uh, members coming up just to say, hey, will you check on, you know, bill number so-and-so. And a lot of times, you know, the bill's in the Senate. Um, and that's also my job is to make sure our members in the House that our bills are being heard in the Senate. And so I spend a lot of time with the Senate Rules Chairman, and he and I compare notes and uh, and, and have some great conversations uh, that I'll, I'll keep between us uh, for now. But I've been very one of the great things about becoming Rules Chairman has been getting to know Senator Raven, the Senate Rules Chairman, and the time that I've been able to spend with him uh, through both of us doing this job. Uh, it, it's been a real treat for me uh, to get to just sit down and, and talk to him about his experiences down here and uh, trade notes on uh, things that we hear from various members because it never ceases to amaze. His nickname over in the Senate is Dr. No. Do you have a nickname? <laughs> well, uh, I, if I do, they, they haven't told me about that yet. So. Kind of playing off of that, what is your favorite part of being rules chairman and your least favorite part? The favorite part of it is just getting to help members get their bills passed. Um, when, you're, when you're just sort of a regular member and, and not in this role, you're mainly focused on your own bills. Um, or if you're a, a, a committee chairman, you're focused on the bills that are in that committee. As rules chair, um, it's, you know, I have my own bills, but it's almost like I don't have a lot of time to really deal with my own bills because I'm dealing with all of the other members' bills. And the great thing about that is it's not so much that I just get to work on a bunch of different bills, but I get to know almost every single member of the General Assembly pretty well. Mm -hmm. And for the most part uh, here, it, unless a, a person is in your party or, or even in your caucus, uh, you don't necessarily know the folks who were on the other side of the aisle. You don't always really know all the folks in your caucus very well, but you at least know them somewhat. And through being rules chair, every member's got a bill that they want to be heard. And so I've got a chance to sit down, talk to those folks, and get to know them. Uh, and it's changed my perspective a lot uh, on the way that I, the way I see that we do things in Raleigh, just getting to know those folks uh, not only on the other side of the aisle, but just all the folks in the Senate. So that's my favorite part about it is just the, the relationships that I've been able to build because of that. Um, the least, my, I guess my least favorite part about it, uh, and it sounds like it may be Senator Rabin's favorite part, is say, having to tell members no. Uh, you know, every member who files a bill, they do it because it's something that they think is a good idea, and there's some reason behind it, and or maybe they don't think it's a good idea, but some folks at home think it's a good idea, so they've got to do it. Mm -hmm. But they're filing it for a reason, and if they're coming to talk to me about it, it's because they really actually do want to do something with the bill. And uh, I'm, I'm not a king, and there's a bunch of other members of the General Assembly who get a say on some of these bills, but often I'm the person who has to deliver 
the bad news uh, in one way or the other. But I try to do that in a respectful way, in a constructive way. Mm-hmm. Um, rarely will you hear a member uh, tell you that I've just outright told them, you know, we're just not going to do something because uh, I think that uh, the the art of compromise is is something that we ought to use more of in those situations. And there's usually an avenue to fix a bill uh, one way or the other and at least try to advance in some way whatever interest uh, that member has in that bill. I asked Senator Raven this, so I'll ask you as well. What is your favorite house rule? There's a number of them. My favorite house rule is that I get to make the rules uh, <laughs> as the rules chairman. But, um, you know, I don't know that I have a favorite, but the one that I enjoy using most often is the, the previous question, uh, which, of course, is when a debate has gone on and on and on and, and the eighth member is now repeating something that's been said a hundred times about a bill and we've all heard it we know how we're going to vote let's vote uh the previous question of course takes us into uh, an immediate vote on the bill so uh i would say that's my favorite but you know there's there's any number of of the men there that at a given time it's it's good to take out of the toolbox i like that rule too especially when i'm hungry ready to go yeah, you know, at one time I uh, I was presiding, actually. Uh, the speaker was off the floor doing something. I guess this was a couple of months ago. And we had that debate. It was just going on and on and on. And I had uh, I had just sent out an email uh, reminding members about certain rules that were sort of being violated here and there. And just, you know, a general reminder, you know, we need to do things differently. And uh, and wanted to remind the folks that I'd forgotten to put rule number one in my email. And that is that you don't have to speak on every bill every time. <laughs> I don't think that people understand that still. Well, it's, it's going to need to be reiterated. <laughs> I, I think you're right. It's, it's the rule that's most often broken. It's my unwritten rule, though. So. Yeah. Yeah, I say make that a rule rule. If you've spoken once this week... Don't speak anymore. You know, I could start naming <laughs> names right now. And, and if I did that, I think I would beat Danny Britt's record for viewers <laughs> on this podcast, uh, which I'm going to need y'all to do for me. Uh, but I won't name any names today. I won't embarrass anybody. You did an interview earlier this session with the North State Journal. Can you talk about what you shared about your background uh, growing up? Yeah. Uh, so I, I was born and raised uh, in Caldwell County, where I live now, and um, I was raised by my grandparents on, on both sides, my mom's and my dad's side, and I really went to live with them around the time I was seven or eight. Um, I sort of went back and forth there for a little bit, but by the time I was about eight, I lived with them full time for the most part, and, uh, and really would stay with both, both sides. Um, and as most kids do, whichever one would let me get away with the most, I'd go there and stay. And then until they told me, no, and I'd, you know, go back to the other grandparents. But, um, you know, I, I had, my parents were just, uh, at a point in their life that they, they really uh, didn't need to be raising children. And, you know, they dealt with some substance abuse issues. And, uh, but for me, I was so lucky to have just absolutely wonderful grandparents on both sides, on my mom's and my dad's side. So, you know, I don't feel a bit sorry for myself because there's a lot of kids who had it much worse than I did. Uh, but but for my grandparents and, and the grace of God, there's no way that I would have been in the General Assembly um, at all. And, um, I, you know, my grandparents, um, none of them, you know, went to college. But 
it was odd that uh, even that being the case, uh, growing up, they always encouraged me to go. And not they didn't even really know what that meant. You know, what do you do to go to college? And, you know, if you've been, you, you deal with, you know, filling out the FAFSAs and all these different things. And they had no idea, you know, what, what a FAFSA was. Uh, but, you know, from a young age, they just continually told me, look, you got to do this, you got to do this. And uh, especially one of my grandfathers who would always tell me, hey, look, uh, you know, you can go to school for seven years. You can be 25 or 26 and you can be a lawyer. And he just, you know, every time repeatedly told me that. And so something must have stuck um, because uh, ended up going and, you know, getting to go to, to law school and, and now practicing law. So um, I have uh, two of my grandparents who are, who are still living um, and uh, one one side has has passed away. And which is actually the reason I came back home um, to Lenore. I practiced in Charlotte when I got out of law school, and uh, one set of my grandparents had sort of gotten in bad health, and um, I wanted to be able to, to be there. I knew that they were sort of in their final years, and I wanted to be able to help them as well and help some other family members who were helping my grandparents. And so I came back home really thinking that probably what I would do is stay for a while, but I'd probably wind up back in Charlotte. And so... Um, that's obviously not what happened. Uh, through a series of events, I you know, got home and uh, started building a law practice, and things were going well. And uh, the, I ended up running for, for state house. I'd gotten involved with my local party. I became the, the treasurer there at the local party and ended up running for state house and, and winning a primary uh, by going out and knocking on a bunch of doors. I, got, I was vastly outspent uh, in my, my first race that I won for the primary, but... I knocked on a, a bunch of doors and uh, ended up winning it that way, and here I am. To your grandparents, maybe even your parents, what do they think about you now in not only are you a legislator, but in the leadership in the House? Well, yeah, I mean, they're, they're obviously um, extremely proud, and, uh, you know, uh, my grandfather especially, he, he loves to tell people uh, about, you know, what I'm, what I'm doing in Raleigh. And um, they get an earful from him every time that, uh, that they see him uh, and ask him about me, whether, whether they ask him or not, he, he's going to tell them. So, uh, so yeah, I, you know, th- I know they're proud, and that's one of those things that uh, is, is important to me. And, and my other grand- my grandparents who had passed away, and my grandfather um, who has passed away, he— he, he died before um, I ran for state house, but I had uh, graduated law school. I'd actually just started practicing law when he, uh, when he passed away. So uh, then my grandmother, um, who's now passed away, she, um, she was sort of failing uh, mentally and had some dementia uh, going on at the end. But she knew I was running for state house. And, and I, you know, she got to go, come and vote for me, of course, uh, in the primary before she had passed away. And I would go see her um, just about every day because I was back home, you know, at this point. And, and she, uh, she would say, you know, now aren't you running for something? And I would tell her, you know, the story about, you know, I'm running for state house and, uh, you know, tell her the same thing. And the next day, of course, you know, she would ask me again, what is it that I'm running for? So she got to be there, though, and got, you got to come and, and vote for me. So that was really cool. And, uh, yeah, it's just a really cool thing to get uh, for my grandparents and my you know parents and family members to get to come out and vote for me anyway. What made you decide to run for political office? You said you got involved in your local party. What pushed you into the political realm? You know, when I went home, 
like I said, I really thought I would probably go back to Charlotte, but I, but when I'd come to the point where law practice was going well, I enjoyed being home where I was from, and I knew I, I wanted to stay there. I thought I wanted to stay there at that point. Uh, I started uh, thinking about ways that I could try to make Caldwell County better if I was if I'm going to stay there, um, because Caldwell, like a lot of er- other areas in our state that are similar to Caldwell. A lot of the young younger folks they go to Charlotte and they go to Raleigh or you know Winston or Greensboro or whatever and they don't come back at all, and so you know I told myself if I'm going to stay here I'm going to do everything that I can to to make the place better, and and I'd always sort of had just a natural interest in in history and and politics in general, and knew that you know someday I I might want to run for something. Uh, but I but I didn't anticipate running at the time that I did, and I was about 28, I think, when I won the primary the first time. Edgar Storms, who was the majority leader um, in the House, he had he had retired, mm-hmm. and so there was a vacancy there, and the vacancies are are done through appointment. And um, I looked at that as an open seat um, because the person who was in there had been appointed, and I felt like, well, you know. The time is now. Uh, it's an open seat in my mind. So uh, I went and ran uh, basically on the message and belief that uh, I'm going to make sure Caldwell County's voice is heard in Raleigh. And uh, so far, I, I think I've done that uh, in my, my tenure in the General Assembly. If you had a magic wand and you could fix one thing in our political system now, what would it be? You know, um, in my job, practicing law, and I do a lot of litigation, I I try cases. And so, you know, one of the things that you learn um, if you want to effectively try a case is you've got to listen to what the witnesses are saying. You can't just expect a script to be read. You have to actually pay attention. I mean, that's the point of of cross-examination especially. And so I think in, you know, in that job, I have become so used to having to listen to actually listen to what somebody's telling me and not for purposes necessarily of, of me always to respond, but to at least under, understand. And I think that's the, one of the biggest problems we have in politics right now is that we're so often listening uh, to what folks are telling us while we're thinking about how to respond and we're not listening so that we can try to learn. And it used to be, um, that our politics were, were more about listening uh, to the other side and, and at least, you know, trying to understand where the other folks are coming from. And unfortunately, there's not as much of that uh, as there used to be. There is no perfect magic bullet that's going to just make our politics perfect. It's never going to happen. Uh, that's some, you know, to some degree, that's the point of politics. We disagree on things. Right. Uh, I don't, you know, all of the, th- a lot, most people will say, well, you know, it's money in politics or um, you name it. I mean, but those things are, are ultimately uh, missing the point of what politics is about is trying to advance your beliefs while understanding you live in a society where everybody doesn't agree with you. Mm-hmm. And so you want to advance your ball down the court as far as you possibly can and the best way to do that is by giving the other folks something as well. But you got to listen to them to really understand what it is uh, that, they, that they're after. And on the flip side, they've got to listen to you. So we need to listen better. You seem to really enjoy 
your relationship with Democratic leader Robert Reeves. You do seem to genuinely listen to him, and he seems to listen to you. Yep. You know, Robert Reeves is someone who I've had a tremendous amount of respect for uh, since I came to Raleigh. And when we're on the floor, um, a lot of times members will tune out what folks are saying if you've got a long debate that goes on and on. And a lot of times the tendency is to tune out the folks on the other side when they're saying something about a debate. But uh, since I've come up here, before I was the rules chair, you know, Robert is someone who, when he spoke on the floor, I did listen to him. Mm -hmm. Doesn't mean I changed my mind and, and wanted to, you know, and voted the other way. But I listened to him because because he, he did always make me think, and he still does. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I think uh, he is a uh, – the Democrats picked the right person to lead them. That's probably not the best thing for us yeah. as Republicans in the House, but uh, whether they know it or not, they probably did pick the, the best guy to lead them. And that is, if you're interested in actually getting something done, then Robert Reeves is a great leader uh, for the minority because uh, Robert is someone who is a good faith dealer, and he is someone who listens. Mm -hmm. He is someone you can have a conversation with. He's not there just to have a fight, and sometimes we have to have a fight, and that's okay. I mean, that, that's part of being down here and disagreeing. But, um, you know, Robert is, uh, he is someone you can work with, and, and really in politics, that's all you can ask for is someone who's, who's being willing to work with you. And, and he is certainly that. And I think, you know, you all are around the building quite a bit. Uh, and I think you would agree the temperature is, has gone down significantly uh, in that building yeah. this term. And um, frankly, I, I think a lot of that uh, is, is due to just some new faces that are in the General Assembly. And a lot of it's due to Robert um, just being willing to listen and, and compromise and try to actually get something done. Yeah. And a lot of it's due to your leadership as well. Representative Dustin Hall, we appreciate you being on the podcast. We appreciate everything you do for your district, for the North Carolina House, for the state. You certainly know how to do politics better. Thank you, sir. Thank you all for having me. It was such a moving interview with Representative Hall and just a testament to his work ethic to be able to accomplish so much at such a young age, it's really impressive. It is to hear Representative Hall talk about really uh, a humble background, and I'm sure in many ways a painful uh, background as well, you know, dealing with family that, that has addiction. And, and to, he defied the odds, right? Just none of his family had gone to college, and then he, he goes on to Appalachian State, then goes to Wake Forest Law and practices law in Charlotte. And and runs for office and and rises really to one of the most powerful positions in the General Assembly. He's unassuming to talk to him. You wouldn't think that you're talking to one of the most powerful legislators in North Carolina, but but it just really is a sincere and good guy. I think he tries to do the right thing, and it is a hard, hard job. How are you going to spend your week? You have some goals for the week of unwinding. You don't have to dress up. We don't have to be in committee meetings. What, what do you want to accomplish on your break? I am taking like eight or nine books to the beach. Mm -hmm. I am definitely a beach reader, a don't talk to me type of person at the beach. You will read eight or nine books in a week? Yeah. I can't imagine reading eight or nine books in like a year. Well, I guess I'm more literate than you. I guess you are. 
I will read some books. I have I have a book I need to finish, and then I do like to get into some summer reading. I can't wait for you to join Zoom calls with that blue sunscreen on your face. Tell me you have a beach house without <laughs> telling me you have a beach house. <laughs> well, you 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 guys have a beach house for the week. You know, you're you're going to be down at the beach. We're going to be at Carolina Beach. It's it's not contractual that you and I vacation together. But you know, we have to make the podcast. Yeah. Yeah. So and we're codependent. <laughs> It's going to be fun. Julie and I are looking forward to hanging out with you, your mom and dad, our special guest on the podcast next week, and his lovely wife. And we'll have more about that next Friday. So you'll have to tune in to, to, get a, to hear from our special guest. You're not going to want to miss it. It's going to be a great special edition. Keep saying special. <laughs> Do politics. Special guest, special edition. Do politics better from the beach. Whatever you are doing next week, get some rest and relaxation. We hope you listen to this podcast and listen to next week's podcast. Rate and review our podcast. If you have something great to say, leave it in the comment section. We want you to help us find listeners. We hope you have a relaxing weekend. Great week ahead. And while you're sitting at your 4th of July cookout, don't forget to do politics better. You will read eight or nine books in a week? Yeah. I can't. Do you hear that, Destin? I'm smart. <laughs> <laughs>